WKXL in the morning. I'm your host, AJ Kirstead. Be sure to tune into the show weekdays from 6 a.m. to 8 a.m. right here on the station, live at nhtalkradio.com slash live. Time to our, for a regular segment with the New Hampshire Bulletin. More from them at newhampshirebulletin.com. They're on the show every Friday in the 6 a.m. hour. This week, reporter Amanda Gokey's back. Welcome to the show. Hey, AJ. Thanks for having me. So let's start off with a quick one just because um, it, it's such an important thing, especially over the last decade, with the number of ticks has drastically increased, partially because of uh, climate changing up here and partially just because nature does some crazy things sometimes. And now we have a lot more horrible bugs that are in this part of the country. Uh, but it looks like there's some funds to uh, track uh, what's going on with them, which would be really good. Yeah, so this was approved by the Executive Council last week. They approved $60,000. They're going to have um, a lab from Maine actually take a look at this and just do a series of, of tracking these ticks around the state. So they've sort of identified 20 different locations um, where they're going to be collecting ticks. And they'll do that once in the summertime of 2023 in either June or July. So when the ticks are, are, are babies. And then again, in the fall, I think it's October, they're going to do a second round to see how many of those ticks have made it to uh, adulthood. Important stuff to keep track of, especially with Lyme disease being so prevalent and us really not entirely understanding how that disease works and they're primarily spread through ticks. So they'll be interesting to see what the, the data is they end up getting from it over the next couple of years. Yeah. And then I learned through this reporting, I didn't know this, maybe other people, this is not news to them. Um, one of the ticks, they're tracking three different types of ticks. So one is called the Lone Star tick. And um, that is apparently linked with a, a bite from that tick can apparently cause meat allergies, which I did yes. not realize was the case. Um, and then they're also tracking one called the Asian Longhorn tick, which I learned Um was only first found in the United States in 2017 and first in New Hampshire in 2018. Horrible names, gross bugs. They just don't die, and it's the worst they end up in your house. I, I was speaking with uh, editor Janice Stillman over at the Old Farmer's Almanac, and it looks like we're going to have a super cold winter. So hopefully all this money is, is not going to be terribly utilized because we just won't have as many ticks come next year, but I'm not holding my breath. I, yeah, I think that would be wonderful if a cold winter could stave off some of these um, some of these bugs. Um, that's certainly a part of why you know the climate change is is impacting this because warmer winters have been getting warmer and that extends the season when the ticks are able to to live. Unfortunately for unfortunately for us and unfortunately for public health. So um, that's why this this was um, an initiative that's being. Um, requested through the Department of Health and Human Services because of the public health concerns that we've talked about with Lyme disease and then some of these other ticks, they're still trying to research and figure out exactly what they, um, what kind of diseases they can um, pass along to, to humans. All right, let's move over to uh, a completely different subject, but it, it was fascinating to see someone dive into uh, and write about this is uh, controlled burns in uh, New Hampshire forests and the importance of them. I feel like this is something that's like uh, completely just 
confuses people in modern society because we don't necessarily think of it. We're, we're very – we tend to think about expansion of cities and growths of developments and everything like that. But there, there's, a, there's a certain level of still caring for the forest that used to happen just naturally over time or certain uh, indigenous populations would actually – do, do this intentionally with prescribed burns in the forest um and it, you actually were diving into this hey can you start off a little bit on your first article on how the indigenous cultures around the area uh would utilize them i mean this is this is really important to make sure there's not out of control burns and different different wildlife and plants not necessarily that may have been invasive were able to be removed like there's a lot of aspects to these yeah, absolutely. Thanks for the thanks for the question. So it, it's really fascinating. I think you're touching on this a little bit as well. Um, there are a lot of cultural ideas around fire, and especially with some of the massive wildfires out west, there's really a narrative, and the media certainly perpetuates it around fires being very destructive and damaging and and harmful. So we have that sort of backdrop of being afraid of, of fire, but um, in these sort of smaller and controlled burn situations, it's been sort of a land management practice that has been indigenous and native to this land for, um, you know, for many, many millennia, as, as far as we can tell, that's what the, the evidence suggests. So I spoke with Paul Pouliot, he's a leader of one of the Abenaki tribes in, in New Hampshire, and so part of his research into this has been, you know, reading these sort of historical accounts about how the landscape looked when um, when colonizers arrived here and when settlers arrived here. And they describe these sort of almost parkland um, landscapes where, you know, there's space for an ox to get through the woods. And those things weren't there by accident. They were ways of that indigenous people had of kind of caring for and creating a landscape in which they lived. And he was speaking a lot about, you know, using firewood here as a source of fuel. Um, and so they would kind of gather wood up to a height of 10 feet. And so you kind of have this understory of the forest that was cleared out and all of the, they weren't used, they weren't cutting um, trees down to burn them, but they were kind of gathering all of these twigs and fallen branches. And so it was a, a very clear kind of looking understory and then cleaned out in that way, which is you know, we've, I'm sure, all seen forests where the undergrowth is very thick and heavy and full, and, and that wasn't um, necessarily the way the way things were cared for back then. And so Paul Pouliot was describing to me there were there was, you know, certain relationship with some of the plants and animals, and among those, red pine were really important to Abenaki people, and red pine are a fire dependent species. So they thrive when there's fire that helps um, kind of clear away some of the other tree species that would otherwise encroach and outcompete them. And the Abenaki people would use red pine, the, the pitch from the pine um, in making canoes. And so it was a building material for them. And then the other species that I think a lot of people will be familiar with that is really fire adapted, does really well with fires, blueberries. Um, so those were a couple, that's a food source, obviously. And so now Paul Pouliot is, is working and doing some research with folks at the U.S. Forest Service to learn more about what these practices 
were like back in the day. There's sort of there's a record that goes back with dendrochronology. So looking at cross sections of trees and kind of figuring out, okay, there's a burn scar here, there's a burn scar here, um, and being able to trace that to a, a particular year. That that goes back to about the 1700s. Um, but now they're also looking for charcoal and different bogs. Bogs are really good at preserving some of this older history that dates farther back. Um, so they're really trying to figure out what uh, what other details they can get about, you know, what time of year were these burns done? And also the frequency they're interested in learning, you know, how, what was the cycle of how many years they would return to these um, landscapes and, and burn them. And, you know, another great piece of evidence that uh, John Neely from the U.S. Forest Service shared with me was that there are sort of scattered across the Northeast and Maine and New Hampshire and other areas, these red, red pine stands and sort of different mountain elevations. And, you know, he he used that as as evidence that um, that these practices have been used on the land for for many years. It makes so much sense. I mean, for all those reasons. I mean, j- and just anecdotally, as being someone who grew up in rural Maine, woods all around me. If you just leave, like trees fall down naturally over time. Every year, the leaves come down. A lot of it will decompose naturally, and that'll have its own purpose for uh, revitalizing the soil and everything. But like carbon's an, an essential nutrient that's needed for a lot of plant life in order to thrive, and to and it's it from just a safety perspective for the for indigenous cultures to be able to use the land still. It, it makes a lot of sense to use it that way, and it it kind of just is. Um, there's, there's many purposes beyond just the obvious. I think that's such a great point. And that was something that came across in uh, an interview that I did with Heidi Holman. She's um, with the uh, fish and fishing game at the state level. And they also use prescribed burn as a land management um, strategy here. And she was telling me there's all these relationships at play. There's the ones that kind of we understand scientifically what's happening. Um, And then there's all sorts of other kind of unknowns. But she said, yeah, this is a natural process that's occurring and we need the science to catch up and to research all these other areas. But in the meantime, we can kind of mimic this natural phenomenon. Like, you know, there's this nutrient flush that happens that's really important. Um, so she's doing one of her burns is going to be in Concord right by the airport. And that's um, for this endangered species, which is actually the state butterfly, the Carner Blue butterfly and that butterfly depends on a plant which is called lupine and the lupine does really well after the birds because as you were mentioning there's all this flush of nutrients that enters enters the soil um and so then in turn you know the the butterflies do really well they're really well nourished they can have a lot of babies and then that kind of boosts their population in a way that you know is kind of critical honestly to their to their survival when you're talking about an, an endangered species you need to have a diverse plant and uh and wildlife population if you really want the, the ecosystem to thrive you don't want to end up with just like the mosquito and then some deer and that's it you, you need to have uh, all sorts of different things in in the the life cycle in order for these ecosystems to thrive say one year that there's um, there's a drought and you don't have a big enough population to be able to survive such things. So any ways that we can make sure that that continues to the next generation is going to be is vital. And we don't need to necessarily try and recover things that we didn't need to work at recovering. 
And it, I think the history of the state is really interesting too and important um, in terms of why we're kind of at the, the point that we're at right now. You know, both Heidi and John uh, remember kind of doing these these burns and having that be a part of um, both the sort of U.S. Forest Service and also Fish and Games Wildlife and um, Wildlands Management. Um, but there was also a period of time in New Hampshire where, um, you know, there was a lot of timber barrens and kind of timber represented this really valuable commodity. And so that is sort of when you started seeing these practices of fire suppression on the land where, you know, fire was a really bad thing. It was seen as a threat to this kind of economic activity in the region. And and that's, I think, you know, almost 100 years of, of our history that those kind of practices were in place. So I think that's kind of the backdrop of, of why now there's all of this um, research and, and attempts to return fire to the land because it has it has been removed from it and and you know it's it's always interesting to think back to on this period of time where new hampshire was so forest it was so deforested um and it wasn't really that that long ago so it's kind of come back from there and um just interesting to see the evolution of of our relationship with the forest and it's really important to keep track of what's going on with down trees and just overall the the health of the forest because you especially when you consider in recent years all the wildfires that have been happening over in california is a lot of that's due to just like no we can't touch it it's this golden mystical thing the forest we we can't do anything with it we need to just let it grow and do its thing meanwhile if you just leave just don't consider it when you have cities and towns and developments all the way around it you're just begging for wildfires that because there's so much fuel that's just left there for generations on end. How's the state considering these sorts of things with what they're doing for uh, with these controlled burns or just in general? Um, in terms of wildfire, you mean specifically? Yeah, that's definitely, yeah, that's definitely a part of what they're doing. I spoke with Steve Sherman. He um, works in, on a lot of the wildfires and sort of manages the state's effort um, to control that. And, you know, I don't I can't remember if we've talked about this on your show before, but I've been reporting this past summer with the drought. It's been fires have burnt, been burning more land and more deeply, more seriously. Usually the summer um, is a period without wildfire and, and that hasn't been the case this summer because it's been so so dry. So yes, it's, it's absolutely another reason that the state is um, pursuing these, these kind of prescribed burns is to remove some of that excess fuel so that you don't have an accidental fire and then you have all this fuel on hand to really that helps it get out of control. You can kind of prevent that um, by using some of this prescribed burn that, we, that we've been talking about. Any other takeaways from these? They're great articles, newhampshirebulletin.com if you want to check these out. But it's, it's great to see that they're considering more uh, traditional forest management again in the stakes. I think it's so important. Yeah, I would. I have one other sort of thought, closing thought on this, which is really interesting in terms of just um, ideas that people have about indigenous people and sort of the state of the um, land before contact. There's kind of this myth about the you know untouched wilderness and um, that the woods are kind of off limits and people don't live there or people don't go there or don't interact with that landscape. And the more that I learn about traditional ecological knowledge, the more it's 
no, there was really working relationships there. And there was a lot of reciprocity and care and stewardship of those landscapes. But um, that that didn't mean that, you know, these were landscapes devoid of human presence. It was more, yeah, humans are a part of this ecosystem. And I think that um, is a, is worth recognizing that there's that kind of shift in, um, in mentality. Yeah. It's that uh, most people don't realize like 90% of native American peoples were lost due to disease before most of the colonization happened in this uh, continent. Uh, like when, when the first settlers came here, they just inadvertently spread all these European diseases that, that were just devastating these populations that didn't have it. And when you have that loss of, culture and and peoples over such a short span of time of god it's like a hundred years or something when you're considering thousands of years of populations it's devastating for just traditional knowledge to make it to other generations or peoples that may migrate into these lands yeah and i think it's also really in in light of that it's always very um powerful, I think, to witness the ways in which that knowledge sticks around and is preserved and is still living in the landscape. All right. Last couple of minutes here, because it's such an important subject I want to quickly touch on. It looks like Unitil's looking to uh, raise electric rates here, and the, it's not great. <laughs> yes. So as the consumer advocate, Don Kreese put it, the last shoe has dropped. So Unitil is kind of on a different schedule. It's a couple of months behind the other regulated utilities, um, which announced their rates increasing over the the summer. Um, Unitil's rate is going to be, if approved, it would be the highest. It would be 26 cents per kilowatt hour. Um, That's up from 10 cents where it's at right now. That's its its summer rate. Um, So that is is an increase of a whopping 160%. and and it's really it's really significant. It's kind of the consumer advocate has um, sort of said he he might challenge this. He it's Unitil has requested to put these rates in effect for eight months, and they're sort of thinking for doing that. And the reasoning behind it is to get on the same schedule as the other utilities. Um, the way the other utilities have it worked out is. The winter months are always the most expensive for um, electricity, as we've discussed. You have that. Everybody's using natural gas to heat their homes. It's also being used for electricity, so demand is up, prices are up. Um, what Eversource and Liberty do is they split the months of uh, February and January and February into two distinct pay periods. So the the idea is that creates more stability through the year, that you don't see that huge fluctuation, that huge increase in prices um, in one part of the year, and then a lower summer rate. Um, And so Unitil is trying to switch to that rate. And they also said, um, a spokesperson told me that that lowered the overall rate um, to some degree, but it's obviously a long period of time for customers to be facing really high rates. Yeah, it's just horrible timing with it, it with when they decided to do it, and it's the other comp- suppliers are probably thinking, "Oh, I wish we were able to wait a couple months because then the numbers obviously haven't improved at all as uh, we get closer and closer to winter." And at the bottom of your uh, article here, you list some information for people looking to get competitive numbers. Can you just uh, thirty seconds talk about that a bit? 
Yeah, absolutely. So you can look online, you can switch to a competitive third party supplier. The New Hampshire Department of Energy is sort of your go-to place for that. And you can find those links are in my reporting at newhampshirebulletin.com. Um, and, and essentially with that, you can find, you need to just compare the price per kilowatt hour of electricity, read through the contracts carefully, know the terms of the contracts, understand how long of a period of time, if there is a commitment, um, understand how long that that is, because here um, in New Hampshire, our electric rates are changing every six months. So those are a couple of things to keep an eye out for. More information is available online and um, I, this is definitely an option. If you want to lower your electric bill, this is something that you can you can absolutely take advantage of and and, and do at home. Personally, I've found that to be the case, too. So definitely check that out. Amanda Goki, reporter at New Hampshire Bulletin. Thanks so much for joining me. Thanks for having me. NewHampshireBulletin.com to get more from them. NHTalkRadio.com to get more from me. You're listening to WKXL in the morning. I'm your host, AJ Kirsten. We'll be right back after this.